This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Man, it is um, fun to be led in musical worship by that group weekly, isn't it? I mean, let's just let's say thank you. Um, man. Um, great leaders of worship and lead worshipers. Let's pray. Father, would you open up our eyes as we dive into your word that it might breathe life to our soul. Jesus, we know that your, your words are spirit, your words are life, that they revive things that are dead, that they fix things that are broken, that they free people who are in chains. And so, Lord, we ask this morning boldly, would you open our eyes to see the goodness of the gospel through your holy scriptures this morning. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. I, I typically tell people uh, when I tell the story about how I met my now wife, Kelly, that we met guiding backpacking trips for young life. That's not tr- entirely true. Uh, we met guiding backpacking trips uh, for young life, but we met about two years before that. We were in the same sort of apartment building with some mutual friends. I did Young Life up in um, Fort Collins at Colorado State. She did Young Life in Northern Colorado. That's a fairly tight-knit, small community, you may know. And so we ran into each other. We had some mutual friends who had a get-together in their apartment, and we were in the same place at the same time, listening to the same friends uh, sing Dave Matthews songs on their acoustic guitars to the glory of God. Well, we uh, met there, and then um, a few years later, I guess I didn't stand out a whole lot. The uh, cargo khaki pants and the clogs didn't exactly catch her attention, uh, nor did her sort of fresh out of Durango hippie look catch mine. And so uh, we, we met there, but we didn't meet there. A few years later, we both were backpacking guides, and we were in the same trainings, in the same vicinity, with only about 30 other people, and we still didn't meet there. We knew of each other, but we didn't know each other, until we were uh, paired together as a guide team on a backpacking trail. If you know anything about backpacking trips, you, you see people uh, at their best, and you see people at their worst, in a very short amount of time. And after two years of knowing Kelly Hester, I met Kelly Hester. And it was as though God, with a gracious yet firm two by four, came up to me behind my head and he took a good cut and hit me in the back of the head with a two by four and said, Paulson, open up your eyes. Because one of my greatest gifts to you is about to walk right by. This, friends, is conversion. <laughs> it is. We, we've churchified conversion, but conversion is simply seeing many truths and walking by them and all of a sudden having your eyes opened to their reality. This is conversion. It's a story that happened in the text of scripture we're going to look at today, Acts chapter 9. You can sort of start to flip there if you have a Bible. Um, And it's a story not only that happens, 
that happened, but it's a story that happens. It's a story that happens to you and to me. I think in many ways, life is a series of conversions. Some of them are climactic. Some of them are breathtaking. Some of them are very normal and very secular. Um, I'm thinking of a conversion when it comes to my baseball team affiliation. If we can't spell our best player's name right on the back of a handout jersey that we give out to 30,000 fans, I'm thinking of converting, right? Um, we, we have these sort of mini, just ESPN.com when you get home, if that was over your head, okay? We have this series of conversions. Life is filled with them. In some ways, what happened to me on the trail was, was uh, a relational LASIK, right? God took his little fine laser and he opened my eyes and allowed me to see what was good and what was right in front of me and that I walked by originally. But did you know that God often doesn't just perform relational LASIK, he does that, but that if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, it means that he's also performed some spiritual LASIK on you. That he's opened your eyes, as we sang, to see the goodness and the glory and the mercy of Jesus. That in many ways, that is our story of, as followers of Christ. That is our song. That's the truth that we rally around. Is that, God, you've done something in me. You've allowed me to see in a new way. And I think a lot of times we start to go, all right, well, that's, that's sort of over there. That happened. And we forget that one of the things God loves to do in our lives as we walk with Jesus is continually convert us. That there's areas and there's ways that we walk away. There's things that we do that, that sort of, in our minds, distance us from God and what God loves to do in, in sort of reconverting us. Not that we're saved all over again, but that we're reminded that we are as he, he loves to pull us in and to show us what's true. And you see, here's the big idea that we're going to wrap our hearts and our minds around this morning. And it's simply that, this, is that gospel sight, when we start to see Jesus, when we see him anew and afresh for the first time or for the hundredth time, what God does inside of us is he starts to create and he starts to spark new life. And so our prayer throughout our worship time this morning, the songs that we sang were, were God, help us see Jesus. Because if we see him, we know that we'll be forever changed. We're going to look at this morning one of the, if not the most famous conversions in the history of the church. Uh, you know it as the conversion of the Apostle Paul, if you've been around the story of God for, for some time. And here's what I wrestled with this week. I don't have the same type of testimony that we're going to read today. I don't have the testimony of, well, I was on my way to Damascus and God blinded me by light and kicked me off my donkey and spoke to me audibly. I don't, you may, you may have that. If you do, I'd like to meet your donkey, okay? <laughs> but I have the, um, my mom gave birth to me on a pew story. Right? I was around church from the, the time I was, Really, really little, <laughs> really, really, as in a three, really, really little. 
And I've wrestled with this story for a long time because in many ways, I, I pray, God, I, I want this conversion story. I want this story. I want the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll story. And then, God, you saved me out of that, and I'm completely different. And some of you have that story. We love that story here. We're praying for more of those stories in the coming years here at South, that God would save people out of desperate, hopeless situations. But I started to read the story and go, all right, what does my conversion to being a follower of Jesus have to do with the way that Paul was dramatically, radically, miraculously knocked off of his donkey seeing a great light in the sky and hearing the audible voice of God. What does my conversion look like? Because it doesn't look like that. And I started to read this story in a little bit of a new light. Because I started to see these sort of core concepts that start to rise to the surface for every single conversion story. People who follow the way of Jesus, these are conversions that, that happened in our life at some point when we decided to follow after Jesus, and they're conversions that continually happen as we walk with them. And what I was reminded of as I studied this passage of Scripture this week is that, that this story, while it's unique to the Apostle Paul, is a story that gets replayed in different ways throughout the course of history. One of those people, one of those stories is, is about a man named Jack. His friends called him Jack. Uh, he was a professor of English literature at Oxford. This is in the first half of the 20th century a prolific scholar, an author, and an ardent atheist. And he was wrestling with this fact. Most of the authors that he was loved and drawn to as a scholar were followers of Jesus, and he hated it. And God started to sort of whittle away at the exterior that he had up. And Jack had these questions that he wrestled with. The first one that he couldn't, the first hurdle he couldn't clear was, why are there, why is there seem to be a set of morals that every single person around the face of the globe would adhere to? I don't get it. These questions of things we ought to do and things we ought not to do, it haunted him. And so he moved from being an atheist to being a theist, but he was very unwilling to say anything about what this God was like. He describes his conversion like this. He says, one evening I was heading to the zoo. My brother was driving his motorcycle and I was in the side cab. I got into the cab as a theist and when we got to the zoo, I was a follower of Jesus. <laughs> he says, I don't know exactly what happened in between. You, you may know Jack as Clive Staples or C.S. Lewis. Now, let's be honest. If your name was Clive Staples, you'd probably go by Jack, too. <laughs> but C.S. Lewis became one of the most prolific and prominent authors of the 20th century, a person who shaped, in a lot of ways, the way that we interact with and talk about faith. Listen to the way he discusses his own conversion story. He says this. You must picture me alone in a room at Magdalen, night after night, feeling whatever my mind, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him I so earnestly desired not to meet. He's talking about God. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. 
In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in. I love, don't you love that conversion language? All right, I, I give up. And admitted that God was God, and I knelt and I prayed. Perhaps that night, this is a great line, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And a person who started out trying to disprove Christianity writes some of the greatest works on what it means to be a person of faith. Now, you may go, well, I I don't relate to that story either, Paulson. (laughs) Let me invite you into this story of conversion. Paul's conversion. Saul's conversion in hopes that we might start to see some bridges in the way that God longs to not only convert, but continually convert people like you and me. Acts chapter 9, it's a, it's a fairly substantial chunk of scripture that we're going to read. I want to invite you into the story. And so if you don't have a Bible, um, just follow along. If you do, Acts chapter 9, we're starting in verse 1, reading through verse 19. And it starts like this, but Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Quick time out. The way is a term that um, the early church was sort of referred to as. I love it. It's active. It's not, hey, they were people that sat in a pew on Sunday morning. It's, these are people who have embraced what it means to be a follower of Jesus, they live in the way that he taught them to live. Verse four. And falling, sorry, verse three. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Just a side note, about 150 miles from Jerusalem, about a week's walk. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Don't you love it? He's like, don't know who you are, have no clue what this voice is. All I know is it's God. That's it. He says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. You think? I mean, bright light, voice from heaven, soul on the ground, blind. Speechless sounds right. Hearing a voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. This is a picture of the way that he'd been living for as many years as he walked the globe. His eyes are open, but he's unable to see the reality that's really, truly in front of him. And so they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to a street called Straight, and the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he's seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come to him and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. This is the Israelite going to the leaders of Hamas and saying, I come in peace, welcome me. 
But the Lord said to him, go. For he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. And then he rose and he was baptized. And taking in food, he was strengthened. Conversion. Sight. Seeing things different, seeing things anew, seeing things afresh. I'm convinced that as Saul opened his eyes, Holy Spirit dwelling in him, that the world started to look a little bit differently to him. But that's the climactic point of a series of other conversions that he goes through. And I would argue that while we may not have the same testimony that Saul does, you probably don't. That these four pieces, these four words and movements that happen in the Apostle Paul's life are in the DNA and ethos of everybody who's a follower of Jesus. Let me show you what they are. The first conversion, the first sort of mini conversion that happens, he's on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, 150 miles. He's, quote, zealous for his faith. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, he'll say in Philippians chapter 3. In a sense, he's got this proverbial ladder that gets him to God, and he, in his own mind, is climbing it. And if you were to ask him, he'd say, I'm pretty high. I'm getting there. Or I'm there. And what God does is he knocks him to the ground, he blinds him, and he shows him, hey, Saul, You thought your whole life was about getting to me. And what I'm here to show you today, Saul, is that the whole time I've been trying to get to you. See, religion says, here's the ladder, climb. Um, do X, Y, and Z, and then God will be pleased with you, and then God will be happy with you, and then he'll shower down his blessing on you. So, so you achieve, and you work, and you get here. See, see, here's the thing. Some of you think you come to church every single Sunday in order to draw closer to God, but I think what the scriptures would say is he gathers you here so that he can get closer to you. And in the core, the very DNA, the soul of everybody who's a follower of Jesus, they have this recognition, this realization that God, long before I ever had a thought of you in my mind, you were chasing me down, you were pursuing me, you were knocking on the door of my heart. And see, Saul thinks he's the pursuer and what he finds out is that he's the pursued. Some of you might have the same conversion this morning. I hope you do. God has you right where he wants you. Where he's going, oh, you thought this was about you growing in your faith, and, and, it, and it is, and it was, but I'm here to meet you. Change you. And love you. See, later on, Saul is going to write, 
He says this, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still, what's the word? Right, right, right. So while we were enemies, you could read it like that. While we were running the other direction, while we were saying to God, thanks, but no thanks, I'll do things on my own. And I think I'm smarter than you, God. And if we had a little, um, if we had to break it down, who's better at being God? God, I think I'm better at being God than you. And when we were in that place, what it says is that God demonstrates his love for us. He chases us down. When we were running away, he was in hot pursuit of us. And he says, even in that place of running away from him, that Christ died for us. Friend, you you may come this morning thinking you're the pursuer. I want to tell you, you're the pursued. And God would say that he's wired the entire universe For us to just simply wake up and look out and go, impressive. Wow. In the book of Romans, Paul is also going to write, and I wonder how much of his own redemption story he has in mind, but he writes this. He says, what can be known about God is plain to all of humanity. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes. Think of it like this, his fingerprints. Namely, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Here's what Paul writes. Here's what Paul says. God is terrible at playing hide and seek. He's as bad as my three-year-old. Hey, Dad, let's play hide and seek. All right, let's play. I'm going to go hide under the bed. Okay. Well, I'm going to get a snack and pretend like I don't know where you are. Right? I'll come find you in about five minutes. Bless you. Right? I mean, here's what he says. It's, it's everywhere. And conversion in many ways is seeing, having the scales pulled back or fall off to go, God, you're, you're, you're everywhere. And surely you were in this place, Jacob says, and I, and I knew you not in many ways. That's the story that we sit under. We go, God, I thought I was pursuing you. But really what I realize is that this whole time you were in pursuit of me. I love this poem. It was written in 1893. It's called The Hound of Heaven. It's a famous poem. It's about the way that God is in pursuit. It's written by a man named Francis Thompson, and he says this. Writing about God, he says, I fled him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him. Under running laughter, I visited hopes. I sped and shot, precipitated, and down titanic glooms of chasmed tears from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. Deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me, all fondest, blindest, weakest. I am he whom thou seekest. Thou drawest love from thee who drawest me. He writes, God, you you chased, and I didn't see it at the time, but you were pursuing, and, and in the longings, you were there. 
This is the story of those who follow the way of Jesus. God, you're in pursuit. You're in pursuit. And at times it's painful, but, but hear me on this. It's not punishment. It's not because he hates you and he longs to get you. It's because he loves you and he longs to be with you. It's not as though God is saying, I want to pay you back. Hear me on this. Will you you look up at me for just a second? God is not in pursuit of you because he wants to pay you back. God is in pursuit of you because he wants to bring you back. Those are two very different things, friends. And oftentimes we get those mixed up even under the new covenant and we think, God, you're out to get me because of X, Y, and Z and God's out, I'm out to get you, yes and amen, but to bring you back because I love you and I'm for you. In this moment, here's what Paul recognizes. God, I thought I was pursuing you and the whole time you were in hot pursuit of me. The second thing we see is it's related. But look at this in verse nine. It says, for three days, Paul, that Saul neither ate nor drank, and he was without sight. Now, here's the thing. If I'm newly blind, all I'm doing, I'm just getting myself to Damascus or having people get me to Damascus, and I'm sitting, and I'm emotionally eating for three days, right? That's what I'm doing. Hey, bring me some more pita, some hummus, some lamb chop, whatever you can get, bring it to me. But Paul's like, all right, no, this is time to pursue God. This is time to pray. This is time to process what's gone on in my life. And hey, hear me on this. We often glamorize conversion. This is a painful three days for Saul. I assume that there's a lot of tears in these three days, that there's a lot of questions, that there's a lot of looking back at his Old Testament scripture under the covenant of Jesus and going, I can't believe I read that like that. And I can't believe I did that. And some of the things that I was a part of, some of the murder that I was a part of, some of the teaching that I, that I put out there have completely led people. This is a painful three days. We often glamorize conversion, but it's often painful. It hurts. But here's what Paul, Saul, starts to recognize, and he starts to see. This ethic, this ethos of those who follow the way of Jesus not only realize that they're under the pursuit of God, that they're not the pursuer, but the pursued, they also recognize that they are people who are under the grace of God. And it's beautiful because here's what Paul hears maybe for the first time in his entire life. Stop. Stop. But I'm a, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And rah, 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 me, 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 me. And God just says, stop. Stop. Let's get it right. You're a murderer. You're angry. You're religious. You're trying to earn your way to me. You're far from me if it weren't for my pursuit. Let's get it right. And you are a person, Paul, beautifully and wholly under the grace of God. So for the first time maybe in Paul's life, he stops achieving and he starts abiding. 
And it's grace that allows him to do it. And it's grace that allows you to do it. And I don't know about you, but so much of the time I slip back into, this is why I say conversion needs to continually happen. I slip back into this method of interacting with God where if I do more, then God, you love me more. And God, if I'm more obedient, then I'm in your, I'm out of your doghouse and I'm in your your blessed house. The reality is, is that you're blessed if you're a child of God, not because of anything you've done or ever will do, but simply because of the grace and the mercy of God. So Paul, I think for three days, he sits under this beautiful yet weighty waterfall of grace. And I wonder if maybe for the very first time, see, he was a Pharisee, so he knew how to pray. But I wonder if for the very first time, he started to pray as the Holy Spirit indwelled him, Abba, Father, Daddy. And just maybe for the very first time, he felt this welcome from God. Now, if you don't recognize that when you pray, I'm praying for your conversion today. Maybe not a conversion to follow the way of Jesus for the first time, but a conversion to be under the weight of grace in the same way that Paul was. To be under the weight of the mercy of God. To recognize you're our father, you love us, you're pursuing us, you're for us, and nothing I've ever done or will do will put me outside of the bounds of the grace and mercy that you've showered down. This, friends, is grace. I love the way that the great preacher Charles Spurgeon puts it when he says this. If heaven were by merit, it would surely never be heaven for me. For if I were in it, I would say, surely I'm here by mistake. Um, Just a quick time out. I'm just going to say amen. Since none of you are, I'll say it. Amen. If it's by merit the whole time, I'm going, I must have slipped in the back door. (laughs) Or, oh good, I pulled the wool over God's eyes. Praise the Lord. Or I'm going, sure enough, deserve to be here. But here's the thing, I know myself better than that. I don't. I don't. Some of you may go there. I don't. I'm with Spurgeon and go, if it's by merit, I have to slip in the back door. I'm sure, sure this is not my place. I would have no claim to it. But if it be the grace of God and not works, then may we walk into heaven with boldness. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's Paul's story. It's your story and it's mine All we have is Christ. Jesus, you satisfy, you're enough. We stand on the foundation that's none other than Christ himself. It's only by his blood you're under the waterfall of grace. So Christian, would you stop working for something God's already given you freely? And maybe we need to convert a little bit this morning to recognize that we are under it and there's no one who's too far to be outside of the bounds of it. I love the way that Paul writes about his conversion. The way that he writes about the grace that was given to him. Listen to the way he goes back and he reinterprets this story that we're reading this morning. He says, this is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance. All right, so that's Paul's way of saying, hey, will you look up at me for just a second? That's what he just said. That Christ came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I'm the foremost. He goes, we want to play the sin game. I'm going to take you all down. But I received mercy for this reason. Okay, so, so here's the deal. The reason you know this story, the reason God divinely inspired this story to be in our scriptures this morning, the reason that God sought down Paul on the road to Damascus, 150 miles, he's almost there, bright light, knocks him to the ground. The reason all of that happened is that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal So will you look up at me for just a second? The reason you know this story, the reason God invites us to read this story, the reason that this happened, Paul would say, is so that you couldn't sit here and think, well, I'm too far gone. I've done way too much for the grace of God to chase me. And I've done far too much for the grace of God, for the blood of Jesus to pay for me. I must be outside of the bounds of his grace. And what Paul would say is absolutely, definitively not. It's the reason you know his name. So that we can't play that game. And part of the very DNA of those who follow the way of Jesus God, we're under the waterfall of your mercy and your grace. And this very day you welcome me as son or daughter. And this very day you say blessed with every spiritual blessing. And this very day you say forgiven. And this very day you say you are mine. It's our story. We forget it. I pray some of you are converted this morning. That your eyes might start to see, God, wow. You're not only the pursuer, but you're the pursuer who comes with the tidal wave of grace. Well, this story continues. And what we start to see is that Paul is not just saved. Because we could say pursued, yes and amen, By grace, yes and amen, and what Paul could then do is go and sit in his room and praise Jesus all day long. But we see that's not what happened. You see, God is so strategic, and he brings into Saul's life at the very time and very point that he needs it, this man by the name of Ananias, who we read about. It's as though Paul or God is saying to Saul from the very get-go in his walk with Jesus, this is not a walk that you do alone. Let me ask you a question. Could God have just simply healed Saul's eyes without calling Ananias to pray and lay hands on him? I think so. I mean, knocks him to the ground, blinds him. I'm I'm guessing he's not up in heaven going, you know what I need? Ananias, my hands are really tied. If he could show up, Ananias, that'd be great. No, no, he's not. 
And here's what we see. Why involve Ananias? Well, he's showing Ananias and he's showing the disciples the extent and the reach of his grace and his mercy. You're going to read about it in just a second. And he's showing Saul from the very get-go in his walk with Jesus, this is not a walk that you do alone. We love our private relationship with God. But I just want to push back and say, I don't know that that's a biblical model of discipleship. In fact, I don't think you can really become a disciple without other people. You practice, try practicing the one in others without anybody else. Good luck. And so we see that from the very get-go, God is showing both Saul and Ananias that healing and life happen in community. It's the very core of who we are as followers of the way of Jesus. I love the way that God calls Ananias. See, because he says in verse 15, the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Time out. And at this point, Ananias is going, no way. Not going to happen. I know who that guy is. I know what that guy's done. My friend was drugged to jail by him or even Stephen. I remember Stephen and he was a great guy and he drug him outside. Never going to go to Saul till verse 16 comes up. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias goes, I'm in. That's my message? Sure. I'm in. I say that sort of tongue in cheek. But then we read in verse 17. Ananias departed. He entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. This is a beautiful invitation. These are powerful, beautiful, restorative gospel words. Because here's what Saul hears. You've heard the story about what I did to your friend Stephen. You know of my intent of what I would have done to you four days ago. You know where my heart's been. And yet I'm welcome. These are words of fraternal welcome. These are freedom Words. These are forgiveness words. These are words that as Ananias lays his hands on the apostle, soon to be apostle Paul, on Saul's eyes, these are words that not only do the scales of his eyes melt off as a result of, but his guilt and his shame are taken away as well. And can I just say to you, if there weren't an Ananias, I don't know if there'd be an apostle So, so some of us, we read the story and we go, well, where do I see myself in the story? I'm, I didn't get blinded by the light and I'm already converted and I don't want to be reconverted, Paulson. And, and, and where do I find myself in the story? Oh, let me answer your question. Maybe, just maybe you're an Ananias. And the people of the church would long to say, you're not welcome here. But for those people you go. And you lay hands on them. And you say the waterfall of the grace and mercy of God 
touches even you. If we don't have Ananias in our midst, friends, we are not the church. If this isn't a core piece of who we are and what we know and what we're convinced of and what we believe, that our arms are open, the welcome of God, there's nothing you've done that puts you outside of the bounds of his grace. If this isn't the drum that we beat, we aren't the church. We aren't. We may be a great social club. We may be a religious organization, but we are not the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ says, even to those who've mistreated and hurt and caused pain, brother, you're welcome here. Maybe, just maybe, God will convert some of us this morning. We see, he says, you're my chosen instrument. You're gonna carry my name to the Gentiles I've got a plan for your life, Saul. It's not skipping through a field and eating strawberries all the time. You're going to actually suffer, but it's going to be beautiful and glorious. And Saul, you wouldn't even trade it if you could. You wouldn't. Because it's better than any life you could ever dream up on your own. And see, here's the thing that followers of Jesus, they not only understand God's pursuit of them, they not only understand God's grace towards them and God's invitation to be part of a community of mercy and grace and pursuit, but they also recognize the destiny that God has purchased, paid for, signed, sealed, and delivered for them, that their lives might be used for the glory of his name. And any sort of spirituality that leads to simply us or us being built up and is not about the nations and is not about the world and that does not care for anybody except us is not Christian spirituality. Because Christian spirituality at its core and at its heart is the beautiful message of pursuit and grace and community must leave these walls. It's that good. It's that good. And that's the destiny that God not only purchased for Saul, that he purchased for you and for me as well. Friends, I pray that we would be converted. I pray that that our eyes might be opened and that as they're opened, God might invite us to new life. I love the way that Paul writes about his pre knowing Jesus state and he says for you've heard of my what's the word former life here's why that's awesome because he goes that's in the past but what God's invited me to is a present and a future more glorious than I could ever possibly imagine this is an invitation to you too would you pray with me So before you go um, running out of here, can I ask you what conversion needs to take place in your heart this morning? That maybe, just maybe, you would start to hear those footsteps a little bit louder, God's holy pursuit of you. That you might start to recognize that God is not interested in your past, but convinced that his grace goes far enough to redeem whatever is in your closet that you long to keep hidden. He says, I know it. 
my grace is enough. Christian, would you remember it this morning? That he's invited you to be part of a community of faith, hope, love. And that he has sealed your destiny. Jesus, I pray that you would open up our eyes. And as you do, that you would create in us something new, something fresh, something from your spirit, that in the same way that it in many ways destroyed and rebuilt the Apostle Paul's life, that it would do the same in us, please. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.